0: The title for this evening's talk is Beyond the Trap of Language. As some of you may know, that I used to be a quite a different sort of person. I used to be a scientist. I used to be a, a biology teacher in, in a number of places, and uh, including college in Long Island called C.W. Post College uh, where I taught uh, molecular biology for about 20 years. I was uh, very interested in knowledge. That was my thing. I spent countless hours rummaging through the library at C.W. Post College in search for knowledge. I had unlimited faith in finding the answers in books and (coughs) and very particularly in, in journals. You know, the latest appeared there. It's possible that my father had a great uh, influence on that uh, proclivity of mine. He was a writer, and uh, his uh, study was a relatively large room lined with bookcases, filled to the brim with books. Even had little ladders that you could climb to get the top books up there. I was in awe of all of that. And yes, okay, I read a a number of his books, just a small fraction of that whole collection. Anyway, here I am at the college library looking for interesting stuff, whatever. And uh, my eyes fall upon this particular book which I, I can't remember having read. I must have read it, but I do remember the title. i never forget the title. The title was The Prison House of Language. Quite, quite a title for a bookworm like me. I was captivated by the book, but was I captivated by that person in the book? Or was I perhaps thinking that the book will help me find a way out of it? I don't know what happened to that book, but it it's one of those things, phrases, that I haven't forgotten in now 30, 40 years. I don't know. Anyway, that is the title of it, the, the theme of this talk. In the first part of the talk, I'll attep- attest to the ways in which language does indeed act like like a prison, like a trap. And then in the second half of the talk I'll point to the way out of the trap. Let's look at the trap first. There's a philosopher, quite famous and quite profound I find or I used to find when I write some, all these things anyway called Ludwig Wittgenstein and um, here's something he says about language that caught my attention and I quote language disguises thought so much so that from the out- outward form of the clothing, it's impossible to infer the form of the thought beneath it. Because the outward form of the clothing is not designed to reveal the form of the body, but for entirely different purposes. I, I thought it's a powerful metaphor language as clothing. More often than not, then, not meant to reveal reality but to replace reality, to supplant it. And this process is often put in practice through fabrication, distortion, and denial. Let me, let me let me examine these things. Let's consider fabrication, for instance. Our our strategy for taking stock of the world so often involves fabrication. Let me let me Mention some examples, see if they ring a bell for anybody, you know. Some things will ring bells for some people, others for others, and some for none, I don't know. Say we're looking at the clouds. The next thing we know, we're extracting, making out images out of the clouds. Freud studied very, this very well, of course, some of you may know. It's a Rocher test. It's not it wasn't clouds, it was uh, ink ink blots, but same thing. And so we extract, we find animals, oh a bear there, or whatever, a human figure or a face, whatever. And we name them. Say we are looking at the stars. Next thing we know, we are connecting the stars and connecting the dots. Ah! Yeah. There is, for instance, the Big Dipper. I always find these shapes a bit far-fetched, but they are part of our culture anyway, even if we don't figure them out by ourselves. There's a whole history of the... Big Dipper, in the Southern Hemisphere, where Raquel and me come from, um, it's a Southern Cross. Doesn't have to be a cross, but we connect them, making a cross. Language plays a crucial role here. Just the moment we say Big Dipper or Southern Cross, we create a shape that wasn't there before. So fabricated entities are held together by the designations. And that's true of all the objects that surround us, day in and day out. Of course, because the objects are familiar, it's very hard to question this. The Buddha was very clear about that and here's this um, in the scriptures here's a story that I'll share with you. Actually is a nun called Vajira, who sort of is the the main character in this story. But it's things that the Buddha wrote, of course. Or oh, wrote. He didn't write. He told and people memorize him and eventually centuries later it got written down. But Jira is sitting there thinking, trying to detach herself from the image of herself and there comes a voice that tries to redirect her attention to the image of herself and does that by saying and I quote, by whom has this being been, that is Vajira, been created? Where is the maker of this being? Being being the, the crucial term here. Where has the being arisen? Where does the being cease? Now, ah, Vajira was very smart. You know, the women in the scriptures, in the Buddhist scriptures, are, boy, first class, really. And she could see through the fact that the voice that came to her was from Mara, from the devil. But it's a, the Buddhist devil is somewhat different from the Christian devil. I mean, he's a nice character. Only tries to deceive us as much as he can, as much as he can get away with. And so, she c- catches up with him Ah he, she says, you must be Mara. And then she starts talking to Mara, putting him right. She says to Mara, why now do you assume a being? Mara, is that your speculative view? This is a pile of fabrications here, here, no being is found, no, solid entity being is found, she means, and then she goes on to extend the the argument, she says, just as with an assemblage of parts the word chariot is used, So when the aggregates, that is the various parts of the being, of a human being, exist, there is a convention of a being. He's saying the Buddha the Buddha vara sorry, Vajira is saying, for the Buddha, of course, that you know, a chariot, yes, it's a chariot. We just use the word chariot to define that conglomeration of parts, that's all. There's no essential entity there. It's something that's created and supported by language. So, the Buddha is really saying we attribute names in his language, Nama, and he does talk about Nama very often, we attribute names to things that in themselves would not exist as separate units except for the name. And so the name, the word becomes reified, we turn the word into a real thing, that's what reified means. So, I was talking about fabrication. Distortion. Distortion is tremendously pervasive in some situations and one of those situations is when language goes to war. Our our minds are embedded in language, just as the journalists that go to Iraq are embedded in war. And in war, only one viewpoint is possible. It's all, only us versus them. Us versus the terrorists in contemporary moments. There were other sort of epithets in the past, of course. Uh, it was interesting to read in the New York Times, which it's, itself has been quite uh, embedded in the war, at times. This comment, this is from a few weeks ago, a couple of months ago, sorry. And it's about uh, the Gaza Strip and, and how language is used there. It says The United States refuses to speak directly with some of the main players, including Hamas and Hezbollah, which it calls terrorist groups. And then the New York Times asks, Has the United States declined to speak with hostile groups because it considers them terrorists? Or does it slap the terrorist label on the groups, it wants to sanction or marginalize. This is nothing very surprising, but it's, uh, I, I find it very reassuring to hear the New York Times reflect on that. And then further down it says, public opinion in Egypt views what happened in Gaza as a kind of terrorism this time terrorism, by the bombing of Gaza by Israel, said Mohammed Shaker, a former Egyptian ambassador to Britain. And they see Hamas and other such organizations as groups who are trying to liberate their countries. So, you see, here is another way of using language to favor, in this case, Hamas. They could be either terrorists or liberators. And the language that we use turns them into that for us. In both cases, there's a fabrication, whether we agree with it or not, but it's a fabrication and distortion of things. In fact, in, with the example of liberators, that illustrates that language not only puts groups down, but can put them up. And in fact, a very common use of language to, sort of, favor certain items is the language of brand names. The commercial names and logos meant to impart a positive spin to the product they designate. This is, of course, rampant in the designation of vintage wines. Even those who know nothing about wines, that's like me, we can go, oh, when we read, you know, certain, I forgot the names. In in my family, by the way, if you want to impress any member of my family, including me, um, talk about Merlot. It's a a wine from Argentina, Merlot. <laughs> it, it, it's beyond the taste. It's nothing to do with the taste. It's got to do with the label. So fabrication, distortion, disallowance. I don't need to go into too many, too much details, really. But disallowance is important because. It means that anything that's not mentioned in language does not exist. Period. That's it. We wipe out a whole area of life. In fact, we get very nervous when things cannot be put in language. And if you have any doubt about that, just check it out as you sit and meditate. It is difficult. It's been, at least initially, for the first uh, few years of my practice, the major experience was one of uh, trepidation. Because I would go into this silence and i would be overwhelmed because I didn't want to be where there's nothing that I can cling on to. Of course, things do change with the practice, and we discover something else. But our resistance to the practice manifests itself with us talking to ourselves endlessly. Unless, of course, we have a, a mantra or something like that, that helps us. Something that will really fight language on the same terrain as language. Fight language with language. However, this is an important discovery. Because when we sit and feel very much at ease with the silence we cannot but recognize by direct experience that we are trapped. And nobody wants to be trapped. So, we start looking for the way out. Okay, let me now make a a before I go to, to talk about the way out, I want to make a parenthesis because I need to acknowledge that language, of course, of course, can be very useful. Nobody is denying that. I mean, here I am. yakety yakety, right? And not just for communicating with others, but for structuring our Thought for storing up things, uh, uh, classifying certain things. Um, uh, Logic is uh, like uh, something that supports thought. So, and of course, the Buddha showed us communicates with us in language and he shows us the way out of the prison. The question is how we use it. Say you go to a restaurant and, and the waiter, waitress, uh, brings you the menu. It's a, very, it's a very helpful thing, right? How are you going to be able to pick what you want to eat? unless you have a menu. Sometimes it's a bit truth. sometimes they use these special French words, you know, to, to again, to fabricate a certain thing. Um, and the wine list, of course, is full of these fancy words, and you recognize one. Ah, yes, that's a wine I like. Just because it's the only, I, at least for me, the only one I recognize. But for heaven's sake, don't take the menu as a substitute for the meal. Don't start chewing on it. Menu is not for eating, it's just a guide, it's not a replacement for the meal. The key then is to use the language skillful for whatever can give us, and without attaching to the language itself, without turning it into an addiction. And and of course that's why this precept of silence during the retreat actually is not a hundred percent silence, Because there are some opportunities to talk, groups, interviews. I didn't mention interviews, but there are interviews as well, if you wish, with me. And um, the inquiry. So we talk about really the correct expression is noble silence. That means silence, but not only, but speaking only when it's appropriate. It's true that the injunction of silence doesn't stop automatically the inner dialogue. In fact, sometimes, because there's no outer dialogue, the inner dialogue revs up, gets more intense. It's okay, because we also have the attention to look at that and to discover how we are trapped. How we are trapped. By the way, since I'm talking about noble silence, let me take a moment to talk about the five precepts that that you are asked to observe, including me of course, we are all asked to observe uh, during the retreat. One is silence, of course. The other is no killing. And that means no killing of bugs, for instance. No no acts of cruelty, in a way, but simply put, no killing. No stealing, which is, I think, quite obvious. Sometimes is expressed in terms of not taking that which is not freely given to you. Fair enough. No sexual activity, which uh, is not a condemnation of Sexual activity in any way simply is not appropriate for the retreat and is not helpful for the retreat. And finally, no intoxicants. Again, you know, a glass of wine here and there is fine, but not in the retreat. A few more things about uh, skillful speech, if I may. Of course, speech uh, can do very extraordinary things, you know. Things that really transcend language. I mean, language can transcend itself, that's what I'm trying to say. And uh, of course, uh, Brilliant example of that is poetry. Poetry tells us things that are beyond the words. And then, at a different level, as I mentioned before, there are the, the teachings of the Buddha, the Dharma teachings. It's very interesting to me, anyway, and hope to you as well. That the Buddha was very careful not to pick up one word and give it um, a separate meaning, um, an, an exalted meaning, not to reify his words, even for something as important as what is often called enlightenment. Ah, Yes, but enlightenment seems to be a word that transcends every other. The experience does, but to attribute that to a word is very tricky. So here's what the Buddha did. In one of his uh, um, scriptures, which I think is very extraordinary, the Buddha... Talks. Let me see where it is. Buddha examines his terminology, and he talks about the exalted stage, the enlightened stage, or whatever, and he gives more than thirty synonyms for that, just to make sure. Then you don't get attached to anyone. And, and, and I'll put them out to you. He says, And what, monks, is the path leading to the unconditioned? Here's one, one word. Mindfulness directed to the body. This, this, is, the, this is called the path leading to the unconditioned. unconditioned. Monks, I will teach you the uninclined, the taintless, the truth, the far sure, the subtle, the very difficult to see. the unaging. By the way, I don't know how they translated all these words from <laughs> they were in Pali, but I'm sure they're near equivalent to that. The unaging, the stable, the undisintegrating, the unmanifest the unproliferated, the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, the auspicious, the secure, the destruction of craving, the wonderful, the amazing, the nailing, the annealing state, nirvana, the unafflicted, dispassion, purity, freedom, non-attachment, the island, the shelter, the asylum, the refuge, the destination, and the path leading to the destination. And then, in the following paragraph, Actually, he does it, I think, even better. Not so many words, but even better, because he says, and what, monks, is a destination? And it is. The destruction of lust, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. Delusion, this is called the destination. In other words, he uses negative terms, which you cannot attach to. He goes through all this trouble, because the, the message he's trying to give us is don't hang on to a word, even a word as powerful as enlightenment. Or, in the original text, Nibbana or Nirvana. Don't let that seduce you. It's just a word. So and so, up to now. For all my questionings about language, the problem is not with language, but with the way we use it. You know, as Wittgenstein said, we use it to disguise our shape, As we use clothing to disguise our shape, language to disguise our thoughts. But the problem is not with clothing or with the language. It's with the intention. Drop our compulsion to fabricate, to distort, to eliminate or ignore, and we are free from the trap. The trap is not in the language; it's in our addiction, because we want to be trapped, because we don't want to be open. Uh-uh. It's important. This is why this practice is so tremendously powerful and tremendously challenging, although, you know, we may take it in a small measure and it's helpful and so on. But, but ultimately it's quite a challenge. I started this talk by describing myself as a bookworm. But, but I wonder whether I was a bookworm or a book caterpillar. Somebody here has uh, been very helpful to Raquel and me by finding caterpillars for us that will metamorphose into butterflies. I don't know if you've ever seen it But it's an extraordinary process. So, yeah, the caterpillar might... Well, I don't know what caterpillars eat books, but whatever. Why not? Let's stretch reality a little bit. This caterpillar may be eating books and books and books, but then time comes when it's ready to metamorphose, becomes a cocoon, and turns into something else completely and flies away. From the bookshelves, if you wish. I hope you follow this very <laughs> complicated metaphor. Mm-hmm. To carry the metaphor a little further, again, thanks to to Mary, who's sitting right here, who shows to brought a. Uh, caterpillars and metamorphoses to our attention. If you look at the cocoon between the caterpillar and the butterfly and you look inside, there's a a moment when you begin to see that the structures of of the caterpillar are dissolving, are becoming liquefied. to make room for the new structures of the butterfly. And let me jump from this image to a very significant Tibetan teacher of the 20th century called Dilgo Dilgokyenshe Rinpoche, and forgive me if I don't pronounce that right. He encourages us to literally liquefy language. He says, What we have to do is to melt the ice of concept into the living water of freedom within. Wow. It feels like a pupa, a cuckoo. That living water of freedom within is what we find in the depth of silence. Where we have cleared out the clutter of unnecessary, unnecessary thoughts and concepts. And with that, the words that accompany them. And let all that go down the drain. And we discover silence. Silence becomes our refuge. A place where life palpitates freely. Not a place where we can barricade ourselves behind anything, not at all. That's why the liquid sense of this place a place where the whole conundrum melts away, allowing peace to permeate our being. Let me see, just a few words in closing. As I was preparing the draft of this talk, I had a dream some, maybe a month ago or weeks ago, I can't remember in that dream I was giving a Dharma talk and I told my audience you I suppose, me, whatever that I'd add something in closing <laughs> as I'm doing now and then One of you, one from the audience, stood up and said, Why don't you just stop right there and say nothing? And so, I did in the dream. And so, I do now, to let the silence... just sit for a moment in silence. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.